This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episode and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am chatting with Carrie Mayer about The Paris Bookseller. Carrie is the author of The Girl in White Gloves, The Kennedy Debutante, and under the name Carrie Majors, This is Not a Writing Manual, Notes for the Young Writer in the Real World. She holds an MFA from Columbia University and founded Yarn, an award-winning literary journal of short-form YA writing. A writing professor for many years, she now writes full-time and lives with her daughter and her dog in a leafy suburb west of Boston, Massachusetts. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Welcome, Carrie. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so glad you're here because I have been a fan of yours for years. I loved The Kennedy Debutante, your debut novel. I am so happy that we're finally getting to talk. Me too. And, you know, I've mentioned this, I think, on social media, but it just meant so much to me that you loved my debut historical. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that we're finally getting to talk as well. Me too. So as we're getting started, why don't you tell me a little bit about The Paris Bookseller for those that won't have read it yet? The Paris Bookseller is about Sylvia Beach, who opened the original Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris in 1919. And, you know, it very quickly became the home of the lost generation writers. So all of those fabulous American writers from the 20s and 30s that you know about, Ernest Hemingway, Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein, F. Scott Fitzgerald, they all found their way to Shakespeare and Company and spent really a great deal of time there. And as if that wasn't enough, she also published the very first edition of James Joyce's novel, Ulysses, in 1922, after it had been banned, became a banned book in an obscenity trial in New York in 1921. So she, you know, after essentially all the big New York and London publishers withdrew their offers to publish it, she put up her hand from Paris and is like, I will publish it from Paris and figure out how to smuggle it back into the United States alongside, I always like to say, the illegal liquor. (laughs) Because this this is prohibition. What a fascinating story. I mean, both components of that story are so interesting. And she published the first nine editions of the book. Is that right? Correct. Yes. So you just kind of wonder, like, that had to take a lot of gumption. It really did. You know, she believed in the book passionately. You know, she had been following the, the serialized installments of it in The Little Review, which was the American magazine out of Greenwich Village that published the, the original chapters. And 
You know, this is actually um, an important note, and I go into much more detail in my book, but it was actually the two female publishers of The Little Review, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, who stood trial for publishing Ulysses in 1921. So it was it was not actually Joyce who was convicted of obscenity. It was it was these two female publishers who were convicted of publishing obscenity. So you know Sylvia, who was a crusader herself, you know she had um, campaigned for women's suffrage in the in the teens and really was a very progressive thinker and and doer. Had been following you know the trial closely along with the other expat community in Paris. And she she loved the book and she loved Joyce's other writing and she really believed that it needed to be a full book and published in full book form. And so it was really, you know, when it became clear that it couldn't be published any other way, she said, why don't I do it? I just think that's amazing, especially in that time period. Right, exactly. I mean, she this is a woman, you know, a hun- living 100 years ago. She was living as a single woman in Paris, um, which on its own, you know, being an American and like opening your own shop in Paris today would seem like a daunting prospect, right? But there she was in um, 1919, opening Shakespeare and Company on her own. She it wasn't like she wasn't without support. And in fact, she, you know, she had a romantic and business partner in the form of this French woman, Adrienne Monnier, who owned the French language bookstore and lending library around, around the corner from her original address. And her shop was called La Maison des Amis de Livre, the House of the Friends of Books. And it was her shop that was really the inspiration for Shakespeare and Company. So Sylvia was, I think, great at finding amazing friends. Um, And I think that's really a theme of the book. You know, her, her lifelong friendship and for a long time romantic partnership with Adrienne and also her friendship with all the amazing American writers. You know, Ernest Hemingway was a very good friend of hers for her whole life, as you know, as soon as he wandered into the bookstore in 1921 as a very young man. Well, that leads me actually into my next question, because you have the most magnificent book club kit for your book. Oh, thank you. And so I had so much fun diving into all of that, your letter to the reader, the explanation of the cast of characters, the idea for a virtual tour of the places in Paris that are highlighted in the book. Was it so much fun to create that? Oh, it was so much fun to create that. And I have to do an absolute hats off to the design team at my publisher, Berkeley, because they they took a Microsoft Word document that I created with just the words and made it look as beautiful as it looks. So um, readers out there, if you are looking for a, like a beautiful reader's guide, um, I, I really am so grateful to my team at Berkeley for putting that together the way they did. And yeah, I did. I had such a great time. You know, initially I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? But then I very quickly got excited about, you know, especially that virtual tour. I was like, and the resources online are magnificent. You know, one of the links that I provide is from uh, to the Eiffel Tower. And you can essentially, you know, have a 360 degree view of Paris with just absolutely stunning photographs a day or night. And, and, you know, and you can click on certain things and, and it'll tell you what you're looking at, you know, if you're looking at Sacre Coeur Basilica or something like that. So it's really like the, the online resources are amazing these days. And the Princeton project was the one I was interested in. And I haven't had time to go and investigate, but it sounded fascinating. Oh, that is an amazing tool online that anyone can avail themselves of. It's all free. So Sylvia Beach's father was affiliated with Princeton University. And she left most of her own papers to Princeton University. 
So they have all of her original library cards for the library portion of of Shakespeare and Company. And let me just put a pin in that and back up and just say, you know, Shakespeare and Company was as much library as it was bookstore because most of these writers who were coming to her didn't have any money, but they wanted to read. And so a a large portion of her space was devoted to a subscription library. So you know, for a very modest amount of money, you would take us out a subscription to her library and you could check out as many books over the course of the year as, as you wanted. And she kept a record of, of what everyone was checking out and when it was due, et cetera, and when it came back. And so Princeton has digitized all of these cards. So you can go in to the Shakespeare and Company project and type in Ernest Hemingway and it will pop up all the list of things that he checked out from uh, Shakespeare and Company over his many years of going there. So, and not only that, so you can read a digitized version, but you can also click on on an image and see the actual card where Sylvia or one of her uh, bookstore associates had written out by hand what he was checking out. I just think that is so cool. And I can't wait to spend some time on that site. I mean, what a resource. It's really, it's really just the coolest kind of library artifact I can possibly imagine. I didn't know until I was reading your book that it was part library, part bookstore. I only ever knew about the bookstore part of it. And the other part that I had always been so, I guess, confused might be the right word about was I knew there had been three locations, but I didn't understand the connection between them. So the first two were Sylvia Beach's locations. Correct. She closed it during World War II. And then it reopened with another owner, actually under another name initially, and then they switched the name to Shakespeare and Company in the 50s, according to everything you've provided. So there's really not even a connection between the original store and this new store other than they share a name. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they are, I think they are soul sisters in a certain way. I mean, you know, so the the Shakespeare and Company that you can visit today was originally called Le Mistral, and it was opened in 1951, about 10 years after Sylvia had closed her original location. And, you know, Sylvia lived her whole life, adult life in Paris, and she was a regular at Le Mistral. And Le Mistral changed its name to Shakespeare and Company in this, I think, the very early 60s um, on the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. And and if you go to the Shakespeare and Company today, you will see that it is very much an homage to the original. They have all kinds of lovely pictures and plaques and textual information throughout the store about Sylvia's original. Right. And they publish their own kind of really cool, one of them is like a graphic novel version of of the sort of the, the history of Shakespeare and Company Paris in full from 1919. So it's just, it's, it's a very cool place. One of the things I love most about it is it has an adjacent cafe, which, you know, Sylvia wanted to open a, like a tea shop adjacent to her store and, and just never did for a variety of, you know, reasons. And so it's so neat that the today's Shakespeare and Company has the adjacent cafe, which is like fulfilling one of her dreams for the original store. I love that. So there is a little bit of a connection. I was always so curious about that. And didn't know enough about it when I was there years ago in the store to understand how exactly the name had gone from store to store. Yeah, and I think I think you're not alone. I mean, and I'm I'm included in that. Like, really, until I did all of this research, I don't think I totally understood the connection either. Makes sense because it's a tad bit confusing. It is. It is. You know, and you know, I think it's partly because, and I really want to emphasize this. Like, 
the current Shakespeare and Company, which op- has been opened for more than half a, half a century, right, at this point, it's opened in 1951 in that location. And it has a wonderful history of its own. You know, it, it opened in 1951. And so it's been home to many literary movements since then, including, you know, the beat generation and, and you know, the upheaval of the 60s and 70s, you know, feminism, you know, uh, the, the civil rights movement, you know, all of it. It's, it has seen all of those things. And they also, the current Shakespeare and Company also is home to writers in a different way. They actually put up writers um, that they call tumbleweeds who are blowing through Paris <laughs> um, <laughs> as, they, as they search for their voices and write their novels. And, and, and these tumbleweeds will actually you know, work in the store for some amount of time, sometimes a day, sometimes a week, sometimes longer. And all of this is on the Shakespeare and Company Paris website today. You can go, you could Google Shakespeare and Company Paris tumbleweeds and read all about it. Well, now I have two different websites I need to check out. (laughs) So you have some great book club questions, and a couple of them ended up being ones I'd love to ask you. Okay. So the first is, was there something special about Paris during this time frame that made everything that happens in your book possible? Oh, well, yes. I mean, first of all, it's I, I'm sighing heavily as I remember Paris. I actually got to go to Paris to to do some research before the world shut down in the summer of 2019. You know, it really, I mean, aesthetically, it really is just such a special place. And, you know, it has been, you know, if you look at the Impressionist paintings from the end of the 19th century, you will just see how beautiful it is. I mean, even the paintings of Paris on rainy days call out to the artist inside people. Uh, We can't, even though it seems really obvious, I I think we can't ignore just like the beauty of the city that made it kind of a hotbed for, for painters and writers starting around the late 19th century, right? There was this process of public works called the Hausmanization of Paris that kind of took place in the 1860s and 70s that made Paris into the wide, boulevarded, beautiful city that we think of today. So it was a big updating project. And so I'll just leave it there. (laughs) But I just think you look at the 20s. I agree with you. I mean, Paris is my very favorite place in the world to visit. I just love it. And I can't wait till everything opens up again enough that we can go. I was just literally talking with my daughter about that the other day. We were just brainstorming places to vacation. And Mm -hmm. she's like, but you always want to go back to Paris. And I was like, I do. I just love it. But I think there's something special about the 1920s there. Yeah, there is. You know, so uh, there were a number of other things that made it possible for art to kind of flourish there in the 1920s. One was it was after the First World War. And Europe in general, but Paris in particular, was very inexpensive to live in. So, you know, writers without a lot of money who wanted to, uh, like, you know, Hemingway is a good example. So he was on a very small budget. Uh, He was writing, you know, articles for the Toronto Star, but he really wanted to be able to, you know, work on his short fiction and his first novel. And so he was able to live, he and his wife and and soon their, their, their son, Bumby, were able to live in a small place in Paris for not really, not very much money. And Ezra Pound was actually instrumental in bringing more writers to Paris. You know, he was himself a poet, but he was also very much a tastemaker and a, and a connector of, of other artists to each other. So it was him that convinced James Joyce to, to make his way to Paris in 1921. 
And he convinced a number of other writers to make their way to Paris. And so Ezra Pound was a component of the reason Paris was special. Another thing that was special about Paris, and I think this this is relevant to my story and Sylvia's story, you know, Sylvia was a lesbian. She was essentially married to Adrienne Monnier. They lived together and they worked together. They shared a life together. But they were not the only you know, queer couple in Paris at this time. You know, famously, there was also Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas. And there were a number of other uh, homosexual relationships that flourished in Paris in, in the 20s. And part of the reason for that is same-sex relations was de- were decriminalized at the time of the French Revolution. So, you know, same-sex couples could have relationships in Paris more freely than they could in other major metropolitan cities in Europe and America. There's a lot of wonderful writing about this that I I mentioned in my author's note that I won't go into now. But that was also something that was really interesting to me that I discovered in my research. So it was just kind of a variety of factors that all came together to make it the perfect time and perfect place. Yes, yes, yes. So the second question is, many people dream of owning a bookstore. Who are three authors, living or dead, that you would invite to speak at your store? Oh, Cindy, I asked this of people in my own, on my own, like, (laughs) you know, I'm going to put in a plug here for my, I do a a five at five most Monday nights where I talk to other writers and I ask really casual questions. And this is one of them. So, oh gosh, you're really putting me on the spot here. Okay. So, you know, I would, so I'm going to stay on theme here. And I'm going to say, I would love to have James Joyce come, you know, having, <laughs> you know, written a novel in which he is a, a main character and he is such a complicated dude. I would really love to, I think, meet him in person and see what he's like to read. I've talked a lot about Ernest Hemingway. So I would love to invite Ernest Hemingway and put him on the spot because he, it turns out, hated reading. There was a scene that I had in an earlier draft of this book that I did wind up cutting for a whole bunch of different reasons. But it was a, it was a scene where he, in the thir- late 30s, where he came and did a reading at Shakespeare and Company and just got absolutely tanked <laughs> because he had such stage fright. <laughs> Sylvia tells this story very, very personably and, and warmly in her own memoir. So you can, you can read about it in, in Sylvia's own memoir. And then, oh God, like let's, I should have, well, I, I will stay in the 20s. One of my all-time favorite books is The Great Gatsby. <laughs> so I would just love to have... Can I get an extra with Scott and Zelda? Absolutely. It's your store. You can have however many people you want. I really... Because Zelda was a writer in her own right. And I would love to see what they were like together. I think that that was such an interesting relationship and, you know, other, other writers have written about that relationship. And I loved the, I think it was a Netflix series that was based on Z with Christina Ricci playing Zelda that I thought was terrific, but it didn't get more than one season. So, but I would, I would love to see what they were like really and truly together live. And then see all of those people interact with each other if they all happen to come at the same time. Yes, I can only imagine the dinner party that it would ensue. There's a great, there's a great scene, um, a memory that makes its way into my book, and it's not a big spoiler, where James Joyce gets wheeled home in a wheelbarrow after a big night out <laughs> on the town in Paris. That's the way to travel home. Somebody can just exactly. cart you home. <laughs> Well, let's back up a little bit because I wanted to definitely talk about the book club kit and some of that. But 
where you got the inspiration. I know because I read your letter to the reader, but I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that and the conservation of rare papers. That must have been so interesting. So let's talk some more about that. Oh, okay. Well, so I first stumbled on Sylvia's story as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. And, you know, in any college, and I was obsessed with the 20s, as I think everyone is already gathering, right? Like F. Scott, you know, The Great Gatsby has always been one of my favorite novels. I've reread it many times. So I just was interested in the 20s, especially in the expat community of the 1920s. And so you know, there I am, you know, 20, my 20 year old self wandering around Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, where there were at that time, many, many independent bookstores. And you know how in a college town, all the the bookstores put out, you know, their bargain bins of bargain books, used books out, out on the sidewalk. So I was pawing through one of those one day and I saw like a used edition of Sylvia Beach's own memoir, which is called Shakespeare and Company. So I read this, I read the back and I was like, oh, I have to read this. And so I bought it for like a dollar or whatever. And I took it home and I read it. And I was just entranced by her story, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, here's this amazing American woman who opened the bookstore and was friends with Ernest Hemingway. I was just, I just thought it was great. And essentially filed it away under good to know. (laughs) At the same time, since you've asked about the rare papers conservation, At the same time as an undergrad, I was also working in the rare books and rare papers department of the university library, the Bancroft Library. And I was learning to to literally mend papers that had fallen apart. So, you know, one of the projects that I worked on were were a, a series of Russian propaganda posters, like communist propaganda posters from the first decades of the 20th century that were kind of like falling apart at the corners. And what I would do is I would like mix glue and select these very, very, very fine Japanese papers and cut them. And and they acted as like sutures to like literally piece together the pieces of paper. It's the most finicky work I've ever done in my life, but I absolutely loved it. And one of the sets of papers that I got to work on were Jack Kerouac's letters. And that was just amazing, right? You know, like there I am, an undergrad, like, you know, reading writers like Jack Kerouac in my English classes, putting my hand and like trying to save his actual letters. (laughs) It was just an amazing thing. It must have been. I mean, I just, when I read that, I thought that is beyond cool. Yeah, it was. And, you know, again, you know, as a writer or just a person in the world, you you have no idea how those experiences as a young person are going to affect you or inspire you later in your life. So, you know, so I had these experiences as an undergrad. And then we, then we fast forward 25 years and, you know, I've, I've written two historical novels, you know, I'm sort of thinking about what I want to write next. And I very quickly home in on Sylvia Beach. And all of a sudden, all of that, those experiences and reading from my undergraduate days come back to me like in force. And I think where the papers, the, the, the experience mending rare papers, and I was doing that right on a table next to the rare books conservators. So I was like watching them and learning a little bit about how you put back together and conserve conserve rare books, right? Um, even though I was only working on the papers. And and so as I'm, it's all coming back to me as I am researching Sylvia and putting together this beautiful first edition of James Joyce's Ulysses and having to go and like James Joyce really wanted the book cover to have be the blue of the Greek flag. 
And so there was all this, you know, hullabaloo about finding the right dye for the for the cover and, you know, the the different kinds of papers that were used in the very very first edition, she had three different editions. She had a kind of a we'll call it the rare books edition and there were only 150 of those and it was printed on some very special I'm not going to say this right, I have a feeling, but Verge de Arches paper. Um, And there were only 150 of those and they were signed. And then there was this sort of middle tier with a different kind of paper. And then there was like the edition for the masses. (laughs) (laughs) The cheap version. The cheaper version, which was still a very fine book, right? It, It just wasn't the sort of rare books edition. So I had I had a kind of appreciation for how hard that must have been and how exciting also it must have been to produce a book that was going to be a work of art unto itself, like not just a literary work of art, but an actual, like the book itself is a, is a work of art. I just thought that part was very cool. And just to be able to actually publish a book like that, that you know there's going to be so much notoriety around it and that everybody's going to want to get their hands on it. Yes. You know, and there were there were magazines and newspapers that were following the, the the publication of Ulysses almost like it was a sporting event. Sort of hard to imagine today, you know. It, it well well on some level, part of it is hard to imagine, and then part of it I feel like we're reliving. Right, exactly. It's funny, like is that exactly? It's like we're not really following it in the larger media in the same way, but certainly the Bookstagram community that you and I are both big parts of and we love that is happening, right? Yes. And I mean, I think it's happening at large also, but not being followed so closely. But what can be produced and what, you know, what can be printed, what's going to be published, what's not going to be published, what's happening in schools. So yes, I think that there's a lot that seems very familiar to us 100 years later. Yes, exactly. And speaking of 100 years, you decided to have your book come out around the time that would be the 100th anniversary of Ulysses, correct? Yes, yes. So its 100th anniversary will be February 2nd, 2022. So that's wonderful that that tied in so well with when your book was coming out. Yeah, I, you know, the publisher, it was just, it was really just luck. Like, you know, when I started, when they gave me the green light to write about Sylvia, and I saw that, you know, maybe the publication date would work, you know, with my timeline of of writing, everyone got 100% on board with that. So it's an exciting anniversary to um, coincide with. It definitely is. It's neat that it worked out that way. Yeah. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me, or are you just busy getting the Paris bookseller out into the world? I am poking away at something um, that's coming next, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it in detail, but I'll just say that it's it's set in this 1970s in Chicago, so it's a, it's a very different kind of book, totally different decade. Um, we are not going to Europe in this book for the first time. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was like, your other books have all had at least some components set in Europe. So that'll be interesting. So Chicago, another wonderful city. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so that is, so it's a, a little bit different for me, but I'm mostly immersed in the launch for Paris Bookseller, which is just so exciting. Absolutely. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Um, well, I'm going to preface this by saying I am a huge audiobook listener. And so, you know, I would say pretty much all my reading for pleasure these days is audiobooks. I listen while I'm walking the dog, while I'm folding the laundry. Sometimes I've le- recently learned to crochet, which is really just an, an excuse to listen to more audiobooks. So I have a couple of audiobook recommendations. The first one is The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley, which he reads himself. 
which I have to be honest, when I, when I downloaded it, I was like, Oh my God, you know, the author reading it, how is this going to go? And then within like two minutes, I was like, yes, he is like a great reader. I don't know if he's had any acting in his background, but if I would assume from this reading that he has, it is just an immense pleasure as an audiobook. And I, and I know that it would be an immense pleasure no matter how you read it, no matter what format you read it in. Another book that I really loved recently, um, and I all, it was also an audiobook, was The Island Queen. That was terrific. The author is Vanessa Riley, and it's narrated by Adjoa Ando. Anyway, it's it's tremendous. It's it's a tremendous tremendous novel. I learned so much about the history, uh, the colonial history of the Caribbean islands and the plight of the Africans who who were enslaved there but also gained their freedom there and the heroine of this book is really like an amazing amazing woman and she is she is a real woman. She is really lived and really really did these amazing things. So that was um, a tremendous book. And I'll do one more which is the the Women of Chateau Lafayette by Stephanie Dre was absolutely terrific, and that was one that I also listened to. It had three narrators. It was also terrific. I have interviewed all three of them, ah, and I enjoyed all of them, and I enjoyed all of their books. And I agree with you on Stephen's voice. He just has that. I don't know if it's pitch or the way he delivers what he talks about, but he he just has such a wonderful way of speaking and a. I'm sure it's a great reading voice. I, I read the book versus listening to it, but I can see that he would really bring a lot to that audiobook. Yeah, he really did. And, you know, I, you know, he recently announced two upcoming books, and I just, I hope he reads at least one of them. <laughs> exactly. Well, Carrie, this was wonderful. I'm so glad we got to speak about the Paris bookseller, and I can't wait for it to make its way out into the world. Thanks for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you again, Cindy, for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.